Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'm speaking to Hugh Gusterson, the author of Drone, Remote Control Warfare. Hugh Gusterson is Professor of Anthropology and International Affairs at George Washington University. He's the author of Nuclear Rights and People of the Bomb, Portraits of America's Nuclear Complex. Hugh Gusterson, thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. My pleasure. So what accounts for the dramatic expansion of drone use by the U.S. military since 9-11? Well, if you ask why um, the U.S. has expanded its use of drones so much, there's a technical piece to the, the answer and there's uh, a political piece to the answer. So the technical piece, you have to have certain things come together for drone warfare as we recognize it to, to work. You have to have bandwidth capability on satellites and you have to have GPS technology. And that didn't really come together until the mid to late 90s. Um, and then it's more difficult than you might think to fire a missile from a drone. Uh, I don't know how listeners think of drones, but they're actually very small and very lightweight. And when they first started trying to fire missiles from them, they had this tendency to rip the wings off the drones. So there's a technical challenge there to find a light enough missile uh, that you can fire it from the drone without destroying the drone itself. So that's the technical part. Um, the political part, you've got all sorts of things that come together there as well. First of all, there's obviously 9-11. After 9-11, the U.S. is scouring uh, especially Afghanistan for Osama bin Laden uh, and the remnants of al-Qaeda. Uh, but they're also interested in other countries in the Middle East. The so-called ungoverned areas of Pakistan, where the Taliban are fleeing across the border from Afghanistan, hiding out Yemen, Somalia, and so on. These are places where... Uh, in many cases, the U.S. is not formally at war. You can't get U.S. troops there. And so the drone offers uh, a means of getting a U.S. military capability to these uh, faraway places. And <clears throat> the U.S. public becomes increasingly casualty of this. So a way of fighting warfare without U.S. casualties becomes very attractive to the Bush and the Obama administrations. There is one other interesting piece of the puzzle. I got this from um, some very good reporting in the New York Times. Within the CIA, um, and the CIA becomes one of the main operators of drones, especially in Pakistan, Yemen, and Somalia. Within the CIA, <clears throat> there's a debate about the best way forward uh, after 9-11. At first, the CIA is trying to capture operatives from the other side, uh, give them to allied countries, which tortures them, tries to get information from them that can then be used to prosecute the war on terror. And it becomes increasingly clear that the information that's coming from these people when they're tortured is not quality information in many cases. And also within the CIA, there's a concern that CIA uh, leaders and operatives might be prosecuted at some point in the f future for war crimes because of their complicity with torture. So drone warfare starts to seem like an attractive alternative um, to the prospect of, of prosecution for complicity with torture. Well, in the beginning of the answer, you ask how people see drones. Uh, I know that probably due to books and television, there's very much that sense of there's one person at the controls far away from where the drone is who's having to make the decision about, about firing. And not that that isn't true, but you do talk in your book that if you look at the actual life of a drone, there are a lot more people involved in its deployment than just the one person. Could you talk a little bit about like how many people, how many people would you say are responsible for a drone and what are some of their jobs beyond just sitting in a command uh, console and making the decision to fire? Yeah, I find that when I talk to people, they're astonished, actually, to find out just how many people it takes to fly a drone. 
Estimates vary, but it's somewhere around 160, maybe even 170. So first of all, you have two flight crews. Uh, the drone is launched uh, from an, an, an Air Force base in the region. It might be in Turkey uh, or in uh, Djibouti or somewhere like that. And you have a local crew that handles the takeoff and landing. Uh, and then they pass the drone on to a secondary pilot crew that's usually in Nevada, might be in Virginia. But the satellite uh, link delay is two seconds in each direction. And you can't handle takeoff and landing with that kind of delay without crashing the drones. Uh, and even so, about 50% of the predators have crashed, by the way. Uh, so first of all, you need this local crew uh, that can do it without that time delay by sight. You have lots of people who are maintaining the drones, who the engines need maintaining and so on, loading the, the missiles on them. But then you have these control rooms, literally all over the country and all over the world, where people are watching the drone footage. And in these distributed control rooms, people are typing messages to each other. Is that an insurgent down there on the ground? What do you think that person is doing? Uh, is it okay to try and kill them? Or should we get a lawyer's um, permission to take a shot at them and so on. So a lot of these people that are involved are in control rooms uh, around the world. They might be lawyers, they might be military officers, uh, and the, the decision to take a shot at someone in the end is a distributed decision distributed across these control rooms. To some degree, the drone is a continuation of what you refer to in the book as rather a neo-colonialist uh, military methods dealing with certain issues, particularly insurgencies. Could you talk about what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, going back to the, the 19th century colonial period, colonial powers like France and Britain originally, and the U.S. now, constantly have this problem of trying to keep order um, uh, on the sort of edges of their empires. The counterinsurgency uh, theorist David Kilcullen, I heard him give an interesting talk, uh, and he's an opponent of drone warfare, by the way. I heard him give an interesting talk where he talked about a drone attack on a particular village uh, in Pakistan, and then he read an account of a British attack on exactly the same village, you know, about a hundred years earlier. So there's this sort of territorial continuity in terms of the location of the places that are being attacked, but also the sense that on the periphery of, of empire, you have these unruly spaces that uh, metropolitan empires always have a very difficult time controlling. The British and the French would send in, in the case of the French, the Foreign Legion, uh, the British would send in the sepoys or whoever to try and control these, these spaces. Now we have a new technology, it's the technology uh, of the drone. But it's the same fundamental enterprise. And one thing that listeners might not have thought about is that there are actually only certain areas in the world where you can use drones without them being shot down. Drones move very slowly, you know, 100 miles an hour maybe. Um, they can't take evasive action. They don't have air-to-air -air missiles. To any country with reasonably sophisticated ground-to-air capabilities or air-to-air -air capabilities, drones are incredibly easy to, to shoot down. So you couldn't use them against you know, even Saudi Arabia, let alone uh, Russia or China or a place like that. They can only be used in uh, relatively technologically unsophisticated parts of the world where the U.S. can assume air dominance. Here in the United States, uh, um, there certainly are, as we've talked about, there are dramatic interpretations of what goes on during you know, drone warfare strike. And we certainly do see some edited footage of what happens in the drone warfare. And it's, it, it's either generally presented as a, an unalloyed good or there's never really, the downside is rarely presented. Uh, the Obama administration 
of what I got from the book is seen very differently in some of these areas as far as how it used its sense of power and projected its power through drone warfare. For those people that may have not had a sense of this, how is the Obama administration seen as far as their use of drone warfare in these uh, theaters where they're using it? Well, there's a radical disconnect between the way the Obama administration sees itself operating in these areas and the way it's perceived locally. Uh, People in the Obama administration are actually puzzled by the bad reputation drone warfare has earned it because they see drones as much more discriminate, much less likely to cause civilian casualties than other kinds of, of aerial intervention. And so they see this as a very clean, discriminate kind of warfare and they expect people on the ground to sort of applaud them, if you like, um, <clears throat> for evolving warfare to a new, more humane level. Uh, for people in, let's say, the tribal areas of Pakistan, uh, NGOs that have done research there will tell you that the people on the ground are deeply, deeply, deeply resentful of drone warfare. They hear a constant buzzing of drones in the air. They know the drones are there. And if you put yourself in their shoes, Imagine what it's like to hear these drones constantly in the sky. You know that probably eventually they're going to rain down a missile on someone. It could come in 10 seconds. It could come in 10 hours. You don't know. So there's this constant state of psychological terrorization for people living under drones. And while the Obama administration insists the drones are very discriminate and only kill insurgents, um, there are plenty of uh, well-confirmed stories on the ground of large numbers of children being killed accidentally by these drones, uh, of funerals being attacked. Um, If an insurgent funeral is taking place, often people in the CIA assume that only bad guys would go to the funeral, and so they attack the funeral. And so there's been this sort of disintegration of daily life in a place like the tribal areas of Pakistan, where people are terrified to send their kids to school, they're terrified of coming out in public, they're terrified of publicly grieving uh, for relatives who've been killed in drone strikes, or, or by other means. So although the American media have scarcely reported, there have been huge protests in Pakistan uh, against drone warfare with tens of thousands of people coming out. Opinion polls in Pakistan show upwards of 80% of the people being opposed to drone warfare. And there's strong anecdotal evidence, at least, that the Obama administration's uh, reliance on drone warfare has actually given it a public relations black eye and is helping Islamists to, to recruit people to their cause. That's what's going on in the theaters. Uh, but you write at length about how drone warfare has fundamentally altered some of the rules of conflict, particularly with those servicemen and women who operate the drones from the United States. Could you talk about some of the stresses that are unique to their jobs? You know, I like to ask people um, when I talk to them socially whether they think drone operators have been in combat or not. And most people seem to say no, though some people say yes. You know, the drone operators are in this very ambiguous, strange space. They feel they're in combat, but often other people in the Air Force sneer at them. They call them the chair force rather than the Air Force. At one point, the Pentagon introduced a medal for drone operators, and there was such an outcry within the military that the medal was then withdrawn. So they feel sort of whipsawed in terms of whether they're combatants or not. They have to live with this very... Uh, stressful in its own way, daily routine, where they get up in the morning, you know, they're with their family, with the wife and kids, or some of the drone operators are women, husband and kids. Uh, They commute to this little trailer in the desert in Nevada, and they spend 10 or 12 hours uh, tracking people and sometimes killing them. And then they come home 
and they have dinner with the kids. They pick up the kids from soccer, and they can't really talk about what they've been through. So um, they're not quite in a combat space, and yet they are in a combat space. And there's this sort of psychological whiplash uh, that a number of the drone operators experience that way. And I think also just the sort of phenomenology of their day-to-day -day practices are very contradictory. They're thousands of miles away from the people they kill, but they talk about also being 15 inches away from them because they see them right there on screen. And after they do an attack, they're supposed to circle sometimes even for hours to do damage assessment, to count the bodies or the body parts, often since the bodies may be fragmented into several pieces. Uh, an F-16 pilot will drop the bomb and then they'll be gone. The drone operator has to watch on screen, uh, watch people rushing to the site of the attack, grieving, screaming. Uh, they can't hear the noises, but they can see people's distress and they have to count the body parts. So there is this, this strange kind of stress and at the same time, they're not getting credit from their colleagues for the work that they're doing. I thought another thing that was interesting is you talk a little bit about, and you, you allude to it somewhat in that answer, that drone operators end up having a weird sense of intimacy to some degree with the people they're, they're, they may end up killing because they're watching them for so long that it seems that sometimes they develop their own narratives about what's going on that might even add to the stress of you know, when they finally have to make a decision whether an execution needs to take place or not. Yeah. You know, I use the term remote narrativization, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it refers to exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you know, sometimes a drone operator will see someone who's clearly an insurgent. They won't track them for very long and they'll kill them. Uh, but in other cases, drone operators will track someone for hours or even for days. And it's sort of like a silent movie where you see the footage and you're left to try and fill in the dialogue and the narrative for yourself. And I found in drone operators' interview accounts and in memoirs, that they've written, they spin these sort of moral fables about who these people are. Sometimes they like the people, uh, sometimes they think they're bad people who deserve to die, but they do uh, develop the strange kind of intimate attachment to them through the narratives that they spin about them. And again, that makes it very different from the mode of killing of an infantryman on the ground in Afghanistan uh, or an F-16 pilot. I should say also that there's another aspect to this that... Um, the book touches on, which is that in a place like Afghanistan, the drone operators may be tracking U.S. forces on the ground, and they develop a very strong attachment to these people on the ground. In this case, they do have dialogue with them. They are talking to them either on the radio or um, through, through typing to them. And it's very stressful to become attached to a group of people on the ground and see them being killed by insurgents and not be able to do anything about that. We're recording this interview on the 19th of July, 2016, and earlier in this month, uh, the Dallas police had a standoff with a man named Micah Johnson who had executed several members of their police force during a Black Lives Matter presentation. Uh, this uh, standoff with him ended with the Dallas police sending in a bomb robot and blowing him up. Uh, are you concerned about that? Is this a first step toward domestic law enforcement, even though this isn't necessarily a flying drone such as we would think as a predator, but this is a machine that was sent in to kill someone. Are you concerned about that we're beginning to Blur the line uh, where drones might be used in domestic law enforcement. You know, as soon as I heard how Micah Johnson was killed, I immediately said to myself, here we go. Here we go. We're crossing the line in the U.S. Now, you think of a drone as something that's airborne, but drones can be landborne as well. And that robot that killed him was a landborne drone. So in the conclusion to the book, um, a very brief conclusion, I sketch out a possibly utopian future and a dystopian future 
uh, for drones. And part of the dystopian future is that drones would increasingly be used for law enforcement purposes within the United States. And what I argue there is that it wouldn't happen in a coherently planned fashion, but that there would be sudden crises and people on the ground in the national security state or law enforcement would say the solution to this crisis we're in today, at this moment, where someone may be killing American citizens, is to make exceptional use of a drone. But the trouble is, once you've made that exceptional use, it's no longer exceptional. You've established the possibility for a new norm. And that's exactly what happened in Dallas. And so uh, I raised the possibility that in the future, we'll see drone. well, we already have drones patrolling the US-Mexico border, but those drones will become armed in response to some kind of emergency. You'll have drones patrolling over cities where there's unrest and a temporary exception will be made to arm them. Uh, they might shoot, quote unquote, non-lethal weapons, but non-lethal weapons sometimes kill people. So I think what happened in Dallas is exactly what I had in mind. It's the camel's nose under the tent. Hugh Gusterson, the author of Drone, Remote Control Warfare. Thanks for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Thank you. Wendy Chun, the author of Updating to Remain the Same, Habitual New Media. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Thanks again for having me. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2016, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.